Welcome to the Archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. We continue our conversation with Pulitzer Prize winner Isabel Wilkerson, author of The Warmth of Other Suns, the epic story of America's great migration. In part two of our conversation, recorded from her home near Atlanta, Georgia, on September 28, 2012, we begin with Isabel Wilkerson's description of her inspiration to write this narrative nonfiction story of the six million African Americans who migrated from the South between 1915 and 1970. Well, the inspiration came from many sources. I'd have to say, first of all, I'm a child of this migration that I've written about, although I did not, as a journalist, choose to write about my own family. I wanted to write about the larger phenomenon because I did not truly feel I understood it, and I didn't feel as if it, was, it had been captured from the perspective of the people who did the migrating in a way that would put you on the train seat with them, in the car with them, and I wanted very much to be able to see what it was like and to feel what it was like and have other readers get that sense of what it would have been like to be in that situation and also to connect it to other migration experiences from for people from other migration streams, whether from Europe or from Asia or from South and Central America. The inspiration having to do with my own family came from the fact that while both of my parents were part of the Great Migration, a term that was never used when I was growing up uh, any, by anyone around me. And even though I was raised in Washington, D.C., surrounded by people who were part of the Great Migration from North Carolina, from South Carolina, from Georgia, from Virginia, um, even though this was very much my world, no one ever talked about it. It was just an established, understood fact that that's where everyone was from, but no one ever commented on it. It affected culture, it affected the food that we ate, the uh, the language around me, the music. It, it, it determined everything, and yet no one ever talked about it. My parents never talked about why they had left. They'd never talked about very much the experiences of what they had gone through before having left. And so I grew up not knowing, and it was the not knowing that actually propelled me to want to write something such as this, to delve into this larger story because I did not know. A lot of people assume that because I'm, because I'm a child of this migration that I grew up hearing all these stories and thus wanted to just build on it, but I actually didn't know. And most of the references to uh, my family, the few that are in the book, I did not know any of this before beginning to work on the book because my parents hadn't talked about it themselves. As the project of writing The Warmth of Other Sons evolved, what track did it follow? I should preface it by saying that from a writerly perspective, I looked to to the works uh, that were were similar to what I was seeking to do. And that meant that I looked at very closely and studied, again, the Grapes of Wrath, because there was no Grapes of Wrath for this great migration. The Grapes of Wrath is clearly about the Dust Bowl migration of 
of people from Oklahoma and Arkansas to central California primarily, and it occurred in the mid to late 1930s, and it involved 300,000 people. And The Grapes of Wrath is part of the canon of American literature, and yet there was no work that even began to approach what it was like to actually be on the train or in the car or on the bus with these people leaving in a much bigger migration, the migration of 6 million Americans from all parts of the South to all points of the rest of the country. And so that was one of the things that I was thinking about as I began to approach this. I also had been inspired by the Joy Luck Club, which was a story of of, uh, Chinese immigrant women who uh, arrive in the United States after experiencing much deprivation uh, in China, where they're from, and they're raising their daughters in the New World with high expectations of them to both maintain the originating culture uh, and values of the old world, but still to succeed and excel in the new. And sometimes those are seemingly contradictory goals. And I felt very much uh, like that when I was growing up. I felt very uh, much identified with the stories in the Joy Luck Club. I felt that that was, in fact, my story. So I saw both the the commonalities with the immigrant experience, but I also saw how very much this was an American story that was similar to the migration that occurred with the Dust Bowl migration, and yet nothing had pull those things together, and that's what I set out to do. In order to begin the work, I uh, I started by interviewing people who were part of this migration in the cities that, um, that, that they had gone to. So I began the work in the North and in the West, and I went to senior centers. I went to uh, to uh, quilting clubs. I went to the Baptist churches in New York where everybody is from South Carolina. There are Catholic churches in Los Angeles where everybody is from Louisiana. I went to Juneteenth parades. I went to any place that I could go uh, that I would, um, that I uh, thought that there would be people who were, had been part of this migration, seniors who were in these cities, the receiving stations, who were originally from the parts of the South. This migration uh, unfolded in three beautifully predictable streams. There was the, the East Coast stream, which carried people from Georgia, Florida, the Carolinas, and Virginia to Washington, D.C., New York, and on up the East Coast. There was a second stream, which carried people from Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee, and Arkansas to Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland, and the entire Midwest. And then there was a West Coast stream, which carried people from Louisiana and Texas to California and the entire West Coast. And so that was what I was tracking whenever I went to any of these cities in the North or the West and was interviewing these people. And I I interviewed over 1,200 people in what I call a casting call. I was, in many respects, auditioning people for the role of protagonist in my book. And so I interviewed um, many, many people who had left for many, many different reasons under different circumstances along these three streams that I've described. Some people were reluctant to speak about certain aspects of their experience, and some were, were willing to speak more broadly about much of what they had gone through. They'd come to that point in their lives where they were willing to share their story. And I narrowed it down to 30 and then down to three. And these three people represent the three streams of the migration, the East Coast, Midwest, and West Coast. They represent three different decades of the migration. 
meaning uh, one left in the 30s, one left in the 40s, one left in the 50s. And then they also represent three of the different precipitating reasons why people left. And so between the three of them, you get a sense of the breadth and the scope uh, and variety of the experiences of the people who were part of this migration. Do you have a sense of the areas about which the interviewees were reluctant to talk? I began with the interviewing of the people because they were getting up in years. And so that was uh, that was one of my... I felt a great urgency to get to them while, before it was too late, while I still had time. And then, and then and only then, after I'd done the interviewing, did I go to the archives to affirm verify and to amplify what they had told me. And it was only after going to the archives that I realized how much they had actually been withholding. Some of the most terrifying aspects of their experiences, while they had hinted at them, actually were were more clear in the written record, meaning they, I believe, had been withholding some of the um, horrific experiences that they'd had in the South, because I think many of them were still dealing with a sense of shame and that post-traumatic stress of having endured such terrors uh, as night riders and, you know, kidnappings. And uh, it, it was said by a historian uh, uh, in the 1940s that there's not an African-American in the South who does not know personally of uh, someone who has been lynched because it was just that common. It's my belief after having looked at both the archives and looking back at what they told me that they actually were very likely withholding some of the more um, horrific violence that they had endured because while they hinted at it and some did talk about it, they didn't even share all that had occurred to them. What archives did you look at? Newspaper articles and journal articles uh, from the era. I looked at census data. I looked at journal articles that were written by, say, the Grove Owners Association who were tracking the resistance and the strikes in the Grove where people were being underpaid and doing very dangerous work. The written documentation of what was going on at the time as it was going on in that era. I was interested in how was this perceived at the time that it was occurring? What was the written record? And so the stories of lynchings, the actual documentation of lynchings that occurred, the newspaper, the screaming headlines about what was about to happen. These lynchings uh, occurred in front of very large audiences of or crowds of thousands of people who could only be uh, gathered together if they had advance warning. And so some of the archives included newspaper articles in which there were announcements ahead of time, sometimes a day ahead, that someone was about to be lynched. And so those were the archives uh, that, I, that I relied upon in order to recreate the world that the people had been living in. Isabel Wilkerson, what did you find the boundaries of the caste system to be? The boundaries of the caste system, which controlled the movements, the lives, and what one could or could not do based upon one, what one looked like uh, during that era, it turned out that the, the limitations and restrictions extended far beyond the South itself. Many African Americans, millions of African Americans who would have been traveling by car at that time would have known that throughout the South they could not stay in hotels. They could not eat in most restaurants. 
they could not even be assured of getting gas or service for their car if their car overheated on the journey. What you describe is the experience of Dr. Robert Foster in 1953 when he migrated from Louisiana to California. He was prepared for that, but he was not prepared for the for the fact that he actually could not do that outside of Texas once he got past Texas. And it turned out that he had to drive for three states of the West to get to California, but he had to drive without sleep. So he was driving in this in the desert and then through the mountains at night without sleep. And this was uh, actually a journey that I recreated myself. I actually rented a Buick as he had. He had a 1949 Buick Roadmaster, and I rented um, the, the the Buick that I could at the time. The rental car company happened to have a Buick, and I rented that uh, in in honor of what he had done uh, to replicate it as closely as I could. I had my parents with me who had been a part of this migration and had traveled during that era, during an era when African-Americans could not be assured of a place to rest or eat on their journey. And uh, they were retired by that time, so they were willing to go with me. And so when we got to the part where the uh, he had not been able to stop for such a long period of time, where he had to live with the spirit and reality that perhaps he was going to have a more difficult time than he had ever anticipated. And there he was driving in the desert at night, those hairpin curves along the mountain. And uh, there I was along the same trail that he had been. And I began to fall asleep at the wheel as he had. And at that point, um, because we were on this road that was curving and on the cliff side, my parents said, you, you just must stop the car. You must stop the car. We, we, we've got to stop. And if you won't stop, let us out, is basically what they said. And so, therefore, I felt I had no choice at that point but to, but to stop at the next settlement, which was, a, which was Yuma, Arizona. And there's such great distances between cities and towns when you're making that journey, uh, that the, the next place was Yuma, Arizona. So we stopped, and because it was no longer 1953, we had no trouble finding a place to rest, which only made me feel even more empathy for him because that had not been an option for him, and it made me realize all the more, as tired as I was and as weary as I was, that I had options that he didn't have, and it made me feel even more empathy for him and for the millions and millions of people, American citizens, who didn't have the option of stopping in their own country for a place to rest for so long. You're listening to the second part of our pair of conversations with Isabel Wilkerson, author of The Warmth of Other Suns, the epic story of America's Great Migration. This is Radio Curious. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Isabel, tell us about your goals, process, and research for the warmth of other suns. My goal was just to get as much factual material, both from them and from the written record, as I could to recreate it so that people could see for themselves what it was like to live in that world. The goal of this kind of work, which is called narrative nonfiction, uh, to my mind, the goal is to put the reader as closely as possible into the hearts and the minds of the people that they're reading about so that they can almost see themselves in that, in that situation so that they can ask themselves, what would I have done? What would I have done had I been in the situation that these people were in? And so the goal was then to get as, to gather as much in the way, as much detail as I could 
to make it come alive for the reader so the reader could picture him or herself there. That's actually one reason why there are no photographs in the book. I get that question a lot. And there are no photographs in the book because both myself and the editor, both of us decided without any much much in the way of discussion beyond just saying that this is what we wanted. We, we wanted the reader to be able to see him or herself and not to be distracted by what they look like, but to imagine him or herself, or just as importantly, to imagine whomever in our own backgrounds, our great-grandparents who might have, you know, somebody, great-grandparents who might have crossed the Atlantic, crossed the Pacific Ocean, crossed the Rio Grande, whomever it might have been, someone who's, or, or a, great, a grandparent or own parents who might have uh, migrated from uh, from Mississippi to Chicago or from Florida to New York or wherever they might have done, we wanted people to be able to see themselves in it so that the, so the so that the deciding factor for whatever is included is whatever would make it come alive for the reader to be able to see him or herself in these people of those who settled in the north and the west, um, you describe what you call uh, a mirage of equality versus the reality of their life. Yes, that's one of the dispiriting factors in this and in many migrations, really. How can any one place really live up to the dream that one has for oneself when when they're picking up and leaving? This one was particularly uh, sad in many respects because they had for the, the migration actually began in in World War One because the people had literally the first wave and had actually been recruited to the north. They came at the express invitation of the north, but once they got to the north and the west, it turned out that the that there was not the place for them that that one would have expected for someone who's invited to a place. So that they were forced to live in certain roped off sections of the cities that they that they arrived in. It turned out that there were many places that they were not permitted to go. There were places that they were not permitted to live. There were actually restrictive covenants in all of these receiving stations, which is what the the cities that they ended up going to were would be called were called. There were restrictive covenants that meant that by law that whites who even wanted to sell to them were prohibited from doing so. And when they did venture into neighborhoods where they may have been the first African-Americans to live in these neighborhoods, many of them were met with fire bombings and with, uh, with riots that occurred. Riots meaning the uh, attacks on them or on their home or apartments uh, by people who were living there already who did not want them there. There was a mirage of equality, meaning that they were permitted to actually work and be paid for their hard work, which would, for many of them was not possible in the South. But there were so many restrictions and barriers and outright hostility in the New World that there was only this illusion of acceptance, but not the real acceptance of this that they had dreamt of. In a social sense, as opposed to an economic or work availability sense, could you share with our listeners the experience of Jesse Owens, the first American in history to win four gold medals in a single Olympics, uh, the 1936 Olympics in Berlin? Ironically, hosted by Hitler himself. And, and his experience on returning to the United States, where he wasn't hosted, and how he got to the receptions. 
he had made history in one of the most ironically historic Olympics ever held, uh, given that it was the Nazis that were that were hosting this Olympics, and he had disproved by his very presence and ultimate achievement there. Uh, he disproved the uh, the eugenics theories that they had been promulgating. And yet when he returned home, he returned home to a country that in 1936 was still very much divided, that the caste system that I've described that existed in the South actually had had echoes in the North as well. And so he was returning in New York and did not get the the hero's reception that he had anticipated would be due him based upon or one might expect would occur when someone has returned and made history in the way that he had. Uh, he was going to a reception uh, in New York at the Waldorf Astoria, and it turned out that he had to take a freight elevator to get there. He could not take the regular elevator to get to a reception in his own honor, even though he was at that point one of the most famous people on the planet, certainly the fastest man in the world. And he made the comment that that it was a, that it was a discouraging reality for him to return home from such a difficult and challenging experience in Germany and to return home to the reality that he was still not really truly accepted in his own home country. Isabel Wilkerson, could you please um, read for us the last sentence of your book, The Warmth of Other Suns, and give us a context for it? The past is of value only as it aids in understanding the present. And as an understanding of the facts of the problem a magnanimous understanding by both races is the first step toward its solution. These are the words, not of myself, but of a commission that was uh, convened after the riots in Chicago in 1919, which had uh, occurred as a result of the response to the arrival of so many people from the South and the sense of economic dislocation and fears on the parts of those who were there already. Many African-Americans were attacked in those and died in those riots. And so this was an attempt in the 1920s by a biracial commission to try to figure out what can be done, what caused this, and how should the city and thus the country go forward. And so those words speak to the recognition that people need to recognize, one would hope would recognize what has gone before and how very much in common all of the people who have arrived in these big cities throughout our history actually have in common. Those people who arrived across the Atl- from across the Atlantic, those who arrived from across the Pacific, those who arrived from uh, across the Rio Grande, and those who arrived within the borders of our own country from parts of the South to all points north and west, actually were all coming to these big cities seeking the same thing, seeking freedom, seeking a better life for their children and their families, and that somehow in the process of the divisions and the tensions and the economic insecurity, those commonalities were lost. A hundred years ago, this commission convened, recognized that perhaps the only way toward really coming to a solution was a recognition of what is it that brought all of us together and how can we push through these artificial barriers and recognize that we're all in this together. And I think that's the message that is coming to us from a hundred years ago to us today at a critical moment in our own country's history even now. Isabel Wilkerson, you told us about an epiphany at the end of our part one. Is there another one that affected you, another aha or eureka moment that gave you some philosophy or spirit by which you live? 
I would think about the moment many years ago when I saw a photograph of my mother and uh, a friend of hers who had both come up from Georgia, Rome, Georgia, to Washington, D.C. They just arrived new in the big city, and their faces are full of optimism. They are dressed in the clothing that would have been popular, sort of like a Betty Davis uh, look, you know, with the uh, shoulder pads and the hair just curled just so, everything exquisitely presented. They wanted to put a fresh and professional face to the world. And yet these are people who were children of the Jim Crow South, had escaped the caste system that limited what they could do and who they could imagine themselves being. And here they were living out their dream or just on the cusp of living out what they hoped would be their dream. It was long before she met my father, who was a Tuskegee Airman, long before I was born, and yet she was very hopeful. And there's nothing in either of their faces that betray the the depths of what they had endured in the South. They were starting over. And that was an epiphany for me many years ago uh, where I got the very first indication that there was some story that I was not hearing and didn't know and very likely set me on the journey of writing this book. And either within or beyond what you described as what you would like to do with the remainder of your one precious life, could you expand on that? Well, I would, I would love to be able to see this book, for example, to be dramatized on the screen. I want as many people to know the story. I hear from people all the time uh, on social media from people who say that they find that what they read in hearing this story, they had no idea. That's the reaction that I get more than anything. I had no idea. I, the people from different ages, walks of life, backgrounds, ethnicities, people who were children of the migration, people who were part of another migration stream from Europe or wherever it might have been, all of them saying the same thing. I am an American citizen, and I had no idea about what occurred in my own country, which is really the story of all of us because we're all affected by it. And in addition to The Ark of Justice, the book by Kevin Boyle that you recommended in part one of our conversations with you, is there another book that you could recommend to our listeners? It's a book that I that I treasure because it's a gentle meditation on some of the issues that we've talked about. The Optimist's Daughter by Eudora Welty. A gentle meditation on the issues of identity, Southern culture, gender, and caste in the South. And it's about a daughter who is returning to the South to attend to her ailing father. And there unfolds before her the layers of the caste system and the pressures that uh, would convey on anyone in that caste system. I think she does a beautiful job of representing probably one of the best jobs of representing the many different permutations, the language, even among the races. You can tell the race and background of people, not with a sledgehammer, but with the gentle accuracy of how people actually talked. She represents the characterizations across race and caste, and I I highly recommend that book. Isabel Wilkerson, author of The Warmth of Other Suns, The Epic Story of America's Great Migration. Thank you for being with us two times on Radio Curious. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Isabel Wilkerson is the author of The Warmth of Other Suns, The Epic Story of America's Great Migration. 
The books she recommends are The Ark of Justice by Kevin Boyle and The Optimist's Daughter by Eudora Welty. If you missed part of this interview or part one of this series, you may find them on our website, radiocurious.org. This program was recorded on September 28, 2012. There are now over 630 archive editions on Radio Curious. That's radiocurious.org. They're free for you to enjoy, download, and share as you wish. We appreciate your cards, letters, and ideas about our programming and look forward to hearing from you. 280 North Oak, Ukiah, California, 95482-707-462-6541. Angie Boyles Askham is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.